Father, as we um, pause now and uh, begin to look at, again, your goodness, and Father, what, what you desire from us, Lord, we, um, we turn to you in faith. Father, we recognize that our most feeble attempts uh, are really nothing compared to you. But yet, you've given us the honor and the privilege of partnering together with you uh, in reaching this county for you. So we pray that you would be with us today, enjoy us, laugh at us, as we uh, try our hardest, Lord, to make sense out of things. Uh, and we're very, very grateful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so for those of you that are visitors, a year and a half ago, during the pandemic, we took a look at Leviticus. Uh, it was really funny when I announced it because several of you came up to me afterwards and said, Leviticus? Have you actually read Leviticus? <laughs> and, we, and we really, I enjoyed it. I had a great time in it. You see, Leviticus is the, the theological book of the Old Testament. Everything else after that is looking back. But the, the core theology of holiness is found in Leviticus. And Leviticus, everything that's talked about is scattered all throughout the New Testament. Priesthood, sacrifice, clean, cleanness, uncleanness, all of that stuff. So we spent the last year and a half asking the question, what is God doing with the church? And what is our responsibility as a church? And I, I use the metaphor that Leviticus is a blueprint. It's a blueprint for what God desires but the problem with the blueprint is it's just a piece of paper. That's all it is. You need a builder. And that's what happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit come. That's why Paul could say we were being built into a spiritual house. Peter can say a spiritual temple. And so this building, this spiritual house, this temple is being built, and that's the Holy Spirit is the builder. So we've taken the last year and a half and looked at what are the attributes of this building. And for the summer, we're focusing on the concept of goodness, you rarely hear sermons on goodness, um, but goodness, the word, the Hebrew word for goodness occurs over 700 times in the Bible. So it's obviously very important. Um, it talks about God and it talks about what God is doing within us to create this sense of goodness. Well, in the middle of all this, uh, a year and a half ago, it wasn't front page news like it is today, is all of the um, churches that are in trouble. Uh, if you follow the, follow the social media at all, you know that pastors are being charged for everything from sexual abuse to sexual assault. They're being accused of, of being very dominating, all kinds of things like that. And there's a lot of studies that have been done to figure out what, what happened. Okay? What happened? Why do we have churches falling almost every week? I mean, a pastor is falling almost every week now. And um, my own personal thought and I'm not alone in this. I've talked to several other of my friends, uh, other scholars, is that one of the things that's mi missing in the church is this concept of goodness. We've deviated in, along the very uh, different pathways. And we've given up on something that is very central to the Bible. So I argued a couple of weeks ago that uh, there's three Hebrew words that, that kind of are woven throughout the scriptures that we need to pay attention to. One is the word chesed. Um, that's just a fun word to say. Just say it. Chesed. Say it. Chesed, yeah. 
That's the loving kindness of God. God acts out of love because of his commitment to his covenant, his promise. He's not going to deviate from that. And then out of that generates, is generated two other words. One is the word reeve, which is justice or lawsuit. And many of the, and I read a couple of those to you two weeks ago, uh, many of the prophets, they organize their language around a lawsuit. God is suing the uh, Israelites for breaking the covenant, and he's suing the gods for leading them astray. But then on the other side of that is this Hebrew word tov, which is goodness. And so those two go together. And then uh, also when we talked about Roe versus Wade, thank you again for all of your comments. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I said that when we walk down the middle of the road, we're not waffling. That's not it at all. You see, one of the challenges we have as Christians is to always navigate theological tension in the midst of a fallen, broken world. For example, we have truth and grace. As we move toward truth, we tend to diminish grace. As we move toward grace, we tend to diminish truth. And so there's no clear path on how to do that. Jesus gives us a lot of examples, uh, and it's different. Every example is a little different on how he managed it. Another tension is uh, justice and mercy or redemption. As we demand justice, uh, we tend to lose something with mercy and redemption. As we move toward mercy and grace, we lose something with justice. And so it is not easy. I mean, this is one of the most complex challenges any Christian faces, is navigating between these theological tensions that are both true. And why, are the, why is the tension there? Because it's a fallen world, and we have to make sense of it. And so we're spending the summer looking at goodness, but think of goodness as a diamond. It's got all these facets, and as you begin to to spin the diamond, light refracts in all these different directions. So today we're going to talk about empathy. Empathy is a key part. One of the things that many of these studies have come up with is that these churches that have created toxic cultures have, there's there's no empathy within the church. That's not a dynamic that is operating and powerful. And you know what? That's human nature. How many of you, not looking for you to raise your hand, this is a rhetorical question, unless you want to stand up and highlight yourself. We always enjoy that. It makes the sermon more fun. How many of you, when you pull up to a stop sign and there's a person begging for food, think of the options. Okay, I ask this all the time in the classroom. How many of you think, oh, oh, I really need to help this person. Or, how many of you think, oh, this is a government program. Or, how many of you think if they were just a little more responsible, they wouldn't be there. Or how many of you think, oh, this is just a scam. See how easy it is to slide off of that empathetic platform into a whole variety of mess? It is so easy, it's like breathing. And so to really cultivate this dynamic of empathy, it is not easy. It's one of the most challenging things in life. It's so easy. When I do it in the classroom, how many of you think there's a government program? Or you go, oh, I'm responsible. 100% of the time, there's a government program. And if you think about the way our politics are organized in our country, we tend to move along these lines, Okay. Well, what about empathy? What about that? Where does that fit in? You see, empathy is one of the anecdotes to toxicity because the very nature of of empathy is putting yourself uh, 
in another person's shoes to feel their pain. It's different than sympathy. It's far different, far different, okay, than pity, than pity. Pity is what the Pharisees are like when you have the guy praying, who, I'm glad I'm not like this sinner over here, okay? No, 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 that's not what we're called to. We're called to, to step into the world. We're gonna look at a couple of examples in just a minute, one of how Jesus did that. We're called to step into it. In missiology, the study of missions around the world, we, t- we say it this way. I have a frame of reference. I teach in six different countries every year, okay? So when I step into a Hindu country or a Buddhist country or a, vo- a voodoo country, any of those, whether a Buddhist, any of those countries that I step into, I can't use a standard language. For ex- example, in Hindu countries, in Hindu philosophy, they don't have the concept of dignity. If I start using a word, they don't even know what it means, and so what happens is they enculturate it so that it become, it fits their worldview rather than the word transforming them into the image of Christ. So when I go to different countries, they all have different cultural sets. I have my frame of reference, and each of them has their frame of reference. And so part of speaking and teaching in foreign countries or different countries or wh- wherever you go is to, I'm stepping into a frame of reference that's not quite mine. Okay? I mentioned a little bit back, I spoke at a conference in Nashville. It was all women. Women. That was a different frame of reference, okay? I finally found one guy, the policeman. I walked up to him, and I just stood next to him, and I go, whew, there's like seven or 800 women. I said, a dude. And he goes, yeah, I know a lot of estrogen here. And I said, I think I'll be okay, but if I get in trouble, can I borrow your gun? And we're laughing. But it's all women. That's a whole different frame of reference for me, all right? Same thing I experience when I go around the world is that I have to figure out what frame of reference am I stepping into. Otherwise, the language that I use loses its power because you naturally want to change words so that they fit your frame of reference. And for the gospel to truly be catalytic and transformative, we have to bring that message in such a way that you're going, huh? Wow. Really? Really? And especially in our culture now where, the, where uh, Christianity has such a stereotype. It's just amazing. And so the more stereotypical the world is and the more pastors fall, the, the thicker, the more um, unflexible that stereotype is. Oh, you're just a Christian. You're like that. I had a guy say to me that, when Roe versus Wade came time, it's time to do away with evangelicals, and that means you. I said, well, you think evangelicals are the ones that are responsible for this? I mean, the National Association of Evangelicals only has 30 million members worldwide. Wow, we got a lot of power if we can change all this. (laughs) He doesn't understand the concept of who God might be. See what happens? And so, because this stereotype is so rigid that it gives us more opportunity, honestly, than I've seen in my lifetime to be authentic and be real. So why are you so angry? Why are you so divided? Why are you so hostile? Why? Okay, now it comes out because I think curiosity is a really important trait for a senior pastor or any pastor for that matter. We talk about that in the classrooms. In fact, next week I'll be teaching a class at Denver Seminary, and that's one of the traits of a good pastor, a healthy pastor, is one who's just really curious. But another way to say it is one who's empathetic. Who are you? 
Tell me, I've asked this question thousands of times in coffee shops and bars. Tell me how you got to where you are. I don't want, whatever kind of pastor it was that, that created this image in your mind that you hate me, that's not the type of pastor I want to be. I mean, I get it if we have a disagreement. I'm okay with that. But I don't want to be the type of pastor that falls into that stereotype. So tell me what happened to get you where you are. And the stories, they are heartbreaking heartbreaking at the way we have treated non-Christians around the world. I'm not going to lie to you. After five or 6,000 coffees and beers just in the last nine years up here, they are heartbreaking what has happened. Where's the empathy? You see, empathy is an anecdote to hardness because empathy is I'm more concerned about you and understanding the pain of your world or the fallenness or the brokenness of your world. Okay, now I'm navigating between that grace and truth. Okay, if I take my stand on truth, then all of a sudden I got issues. And Jesus paves the way for that. In Matthew 10, he says, with Peter standing right there, if you deny me publicly, I will deny you before the Father. And that's the exact word that's used numerous times in Peter's denial three times. He denied him publicly. Did Jesus deny him before the Father? No. The end of John, he went after him. So he gives us this very interesting model to look at. I think of it like this. The teachings of Jesus, they give us the ideal perfect standard of which not one of you has ever met and never will meet. If you get angry, you've committed murder. You lust, you've committed adultery. The list goes on, on and on. And so what that tells us is that the ideal standard can never, ever, ever be met by us. It's impossible. Now you know why the cross is so important. Grace. That's the reason. That's the only only hope we have is the cross. The moment you get angry, you just violated the law. Empathy. It's that softening of the heart It's the capacity to feel another person's pain, brokenness, whatever it is. It's the capacity to get into their world and make sense of it. And that is what is lacking in these churches. That's one of the key ingredients that is lacking. Well, empathy alone is not enough. Compassion is the outworking of that empathy. You could feel something and never do anything about it. Okay? But compassion is the ability to alleviate another person's pain and step into it. It's so easy for us to forget that. We've been blessed so we can be a blessing to others. You don't have wealth for your own benefit. You have wealth so you can share it for others. Those of you that are here that are of high capacity, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to bless our young families here that are struggling to make it? We're getting ready to do a retreat. We lowered the cost so that our young families could afford to come, okay? But that's going to cost us something to do that as a church. Are you willing to step up and help us? Those of you with capacity, he's blessed us for that. Or, like I said, I gave you the, the, the person on the street corner. What about somebody who's a widow? widow? We just, you know, where's Jeannie? There she is. Jeannie just lost her husband two or three weeks ago. Okay, we prayed for him, Bill, for, for a long time. Here's what happens when you lose people. I know because I lost my first wife. The first week, everybody was there, and the refrigerator was full of food. And then everybody went home. 
I remember my first night alone, a week later. It was just me. And I just sat down and started to sob. Nobody came. Nobody showed up. Now, I realize that you can't live in her pain like she does. But empathy says you're not going to forget her. You know what I do when somebody loses a spouse? I usually set up a, uh, a calendar appointment for 30 days out. And that's when I send my card. 30 days out. When it's silent. Because everybody goes away. You know, it's kind of interesting. I opened up a box that I've had for a long time. In there was all 300 cards mailed to me when Judy died 38 years ago. I had never even opened them because the pain was so great. The pain was like nothing I have ever experienced in my life. The last thing I wanted to do was read a bunch of empty words from people that may or may not care about me. I put them in a box. I opened them up. Now we're talking 37 years later. I don't even know three-fourths of the people. What does empathy say? Empathy says, Jeannie, I love you. And guess what? I'm not going to forget you. And from time to time, I'm going to check in and take you to coffee and say, how's it going? I'm getting ready to do a wedding from a lady in our church who lost her husband seven years ago. And about once a month, I call her up and say, let's go have coffee. How are you doing? I told her, when you lose a spouse, here's what it's like. You have a hillside, and a forest fire ravages the hillside. Everything's gone. And all of a sudden, there's just dirt and mud and ash and the rain. It's a mess. It's mucky. It's terrible. And then all of a sudden, there's a flower that grows, and then another flower that grows. Pretty soon, there's ground covering starting to appear. This is the healing, the grieving process. And then you're walking through this incredible, this incredible field of flowers, and you trip over a limb that's buried underneath that, a charred limb. That's one of the memories that pops up. And yes, they keep popping up. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's 37 years, and sometimes I still cry for my first wife. Okay? So, so I met with this woman. About every four to six weeks, we had coffee. And one day I said, how's it going? And she goes, there's a flower. I'll never forget that. Empathy says you don't forget Ah, there's a government program that'll take care of that. We have a benevolence committee that'll take care of that. Our food bank, they're hungry. You know, if they only got a job, they'd be okay. I mean, all that is the opposite of empathy. Empathy is when you say, I care. I care. That's a softening of the heart. That's the antidote to toxicity. That's the antidote to tyranny. They say antidote to abuse. The antidote is empathy. And it's really interesting that the studies have begun to show that that's one of the things missing in these churches where it's been allowed to happen. A church defined by goodness is always cultivating empathy. Sadly, many Christians and churches lack that empathy. It's very natural for it to just fizzle out. That's very natural. I'm not trying to criticize you for that. I struggle with it too. In a fallen world, that's very natural for that empathy to, to fizzle. Okay? You gotta get back to life. Well, Jeannie 
she can't get back to her life. And some of the others of you who have lost spouses, your life is very different than it was. You can't get back to it. And so to cultivate that sense of goodness, that sense of empathy, that softness is what protects us as a church. So just think about the things that we made a list of several of these. Care for the poor, the marginalized, the hurting. Jesus cared for them. We're going to look at a case study in just a minute. Concern for widows, I brought that up. Prayer for the sick and the dying. I remember praying for my friend for 20 years, and he came to Christ. And I go, whew, I can cross him off the list. And then it dawned on me, wait, there's no command in Scripture to pray for the unsaved for the sake of salvation. Every example is praying for the saved. So I put him right back on the list, and that's been 25 years later, I'm still praying for him. (laughs) Okay? Concern for the elderly. There was a time in the history of the world when the elderly were the wise people. Today, they're to be avoided. There's not much wisdom among the elderly. Just ask the young people, what happened? Now that I'm starting to get a couple years under my belt, I get it. (laughs) How about this one? Women not allowed to use their gifts in church. You guys know know that I'm doing this um, uh, podcast, and I'm getting emails from women all around the world that are saying these things to me. One woman, she said, I sat there and listened to what you had to say, and she said, and I began to weep. And she said, I began to weep because I thought, maybe, maybe there's a pastor who believes in true grace. You know how that saddens me? That doesn't make me feel good that I had that impact. It saddens me that she's a grown woman, and this is the first time she thinks that. I'm getting this from all over the world from women, okay? One of the things we learn in Scripture is various ways to approach the Bible in our, what we call hermeneutics, our interpretation, our study of the Bible. We obviously look at verbs and syntax and blah, blah, blah. We look at context. We look at theology. We look at all that. But there's also many other ways to look at it. We can look at it contemplatively. We can look at it reflectively. We can look at it empathetically. I'm going to show you, I'm going to read to you how one woman in the 19th century showed empathy when she interpreted this verse. But I'm going to read you the verse first. It's out of Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman, now remember this is a Canaanite woman, okay? A Canaanite woman came from, uh, from that vicinity, came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. (coughs) This is the verse that receives attention, by the way. (coughs) Excuse me. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus said to her, woman, you have incredible faith. Your request is granted. Her daughter was healed at that very moment. I read a book. I mostly threw it. These are women in the story of Jesus. It's looking at the women in the Bible through the eyes of 19th century 
biblical interpreters, okay? So this is a woman from the 1800s. Now I want you to listen to the empathy of how she approaches this. Far away on the Phoenician coast, perhaps in a small cottage by the sea, that poor woman dwelt with her afflicted daughter. We're not told whether she had a husband or other children, nor is her name mentioned. Dallas, to bring out the stronger notice, the plain facts of the case. The deep cause of her distress in the miracle that was wrought in her behalf. Think then, my dear mothers, think then what the poor woman's sufferings must have been as she witnessed the awful power which so controlled and overcame her child, rendered helpless by that unseen enemy who often led her to injure and perhaps almost to destroy herself. We can judge by our own feelings when we see our little ones suffering from smaller maladies, be it some wound or burn, perhaps some sad accident. Which of us would not rather suffer it all herself if only her child might be spared? By the way, this is what the chosen is doing if you're watching it. It's looking at the story through the eyes of the characters in the story. This is what she's doing. With what surprise then and hope must that poor sorrowing mother have heard of a wonderful stranger who was passing from city to city effecting such marvelous cures, how he would take them to be cured by this gracious physician. No money to be paid, and therefore none were too poor to go to him. He bade all welcome, nor turned away from the worst case ever presented to him. With that, what feelings then must this Canaanitish mother have hastened to find him? Her child was too bad to be taken to him, it is true, but she would go herself and plead on her behalf for his help. But what is this that we see? He heeds her not, but he passes by. Again, she follows the crowd. She utters her piteous cry till those nearest the Lord came and brought besought him to stop and give her what she wanted so that her troubled voice might cease to disturb them. Boy, talk about a lack of empathy. Not heeding the response of the master as he replies to his disciples, I was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She falls at his feet in the utmost despair, fearful lest he should even now pass her by. Can you picture her as she lies prostrate and clasps him by the feet with tears streaming down her cheeks, utterly her bitter wail, Lord, please help me. He replies discouragingly, it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. But listen to the sequel. Love is strong. A mother's love strongest of all and well nigh unquenchable. She represents not the comparison with the dogs. She doesn't resent that. For her child's sake, she will put up with ignominy, not a word I use very often, and contempt so that the request be granted. Lord, one word from your lips and my daughter shall be healed. Such marvelous faith. And now, O ye mothers, are you like this woman? strong in faith see she's looking at this story with empathy and that's one of the ways we're taught to study scripture is to stop and pay attention to the characters of scripture and what do we learn from them
John is notorious for using minor characters to carry the storyline. What do we learn from them? You see, this is that character trait, that quality that I'm talking about. I want to know what was on her mind. Now, I don't want to be too gender stereotypical, but when we brought women on the board a few years ago, you know what? All of a sudden, empathy came in a different form than we're used to seeing it. Different form. We have women involved in all aspects of our church, our staff, our elders, our leadership teams. And you know what? I love the empathy. I made a statement at the last elder meeting about me, and one of the female elders said, well, that's good, but what about Nancy? My wife. And Nancy's like, hoo-hoo. <laughs> Somebody's watching out for her. Okay. A church that is good develops a culture of empathy, but not empathy alone, and compassion. For all groups, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who walks through the doors. It doesn't matter what sin they're involved in or engaged in. It doesn't matter what their struggles are. A church that is developing goodness is developing that soft heart of empathy. I want to step into that world and see what I can do to bring about relief with what God might have blessed me with. That's empathy. And guess what? It is your responsibility. Don't defer all that to the church. Oh, we have a benevolence committee. They'll take care of it. No. Practice the discipline of going, oh, oh, this person is hurting One of my dear friends, a single mom, she's with the Lord now. A number of years ago, she's an inner city missionary in Denver. Uh, Her refrigerator died. So I called one of my good friends, and I said, you heard what happened, right? Yep. I said, "Uh, you want to bless her? He goes, absolutely. So I went down and bought her a new fridge, filled it with food. When she came home, it was in her house. She cried and cried and cried. Both of us had that, oh, oh, why would I turn away? I have the resources to help. Why would I turn away? Okay, I'm going to finish with this. This is Jesus' first public statement about Scripture. He's in his own hometown, Nazareth, and he sits down to read from Isaiah, and he opens up the book, and here's what he reads. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, Now picture the empathy from the Lord, which he later lives out with Zacchaeus, the woman caught in adultery, the Samaritan woman, the prostitute washing his feet. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, good news to the poor. Don't leave them floundering. But not only that, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, those that are stuck in their sin can't get out of it recovery of sight for the blind that's healing people to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor all of your debts are forgiven this is the Jesus that we serve right here Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen. take this home with you 
and ask yourself this question. Because if you, if you at all look on social media, you'll see that this is so true. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. I'm astounded at how cold and hostile social media is. Where's the warmth? Where's the, where's the compassion? Where's the love? Where's the empathy? So when you look at your life, what is it reflecting? And the same is true for our church. Our lives reflect what we truly believe. I said all along, I mean, it's old language now, but show me your day timer and show me your checkbook and I can tell you what your priorities are. It doesn't matter what you say. It really doesn't. It's like Jesus, it matters what you do. Are you cultivating a heart of empathy? Because that's necessary to protect this church. And for those of you that are visitors, does your church cultivate empathy? It's necessary. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending us a son to die for us. But not only that, a son to love us. A son to stop along the way and hear a mother's plea and heal her daughter. A son who would take a sinner, sinful woman, probably a prostitute, into the home of a prostitute, not ashamed, I mean into the home of a Pharisee, not ashamed, not ashamed of her. A son who would step down and uh, tell Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, everybody hated, come on Zacchaeus, I'm eating in your house today. He's not ashamed. Wasn't ashamed at all. A son who would, who would kneel with a woman caught in adultery, full of shame and humiliation and embarrassment, and just love her. Thank you for sending us that kind of son. Help us to be that type of church and those types of Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.